Bibles, please, to First Timothy, chapter six. For those uh, visiting today, we're going through a series on the book of First Timothy. Paul had ministered in Ephesus for a number of years, and he left, uh, leaving Timothy in charge. And he gives Timothy some instructions for how they are to conduct themselves as an assembly, as the household of God, the the church of the living God. And so we've been looking at these instructions. They're good. They're good. Even though Paul is writing to um, someone like Timothy, a spiritual leader in that church, certainly we've looked at these instructions are applicable not only to uh, spiritual leaders, but to each and every one of us. Uh, and certainly they're applicable to our assembly today. Um, and so uh, today we're looking at verses 3 through 10 of chapter 6. In case you were not aware, we are almost done with 1 Timothy. And you know what? We said you might as well just keep going. So we're going to continue with 2 Timothy when we're done with 1 Timothy. So for this first half of 2024, you're going to get some instruction on the pastoral epistles. Okay? So again, as you're reading, you may want to take, you know, read through 1 and 2 Timothy several times. Um, but... Uh, what I'd like to do is, as you're there in 1 Timothy chapter 6, I just want to read to you a portion here. You don't need to turn there, but it's in Acts chapter 20. Just a few verses here. It says this. It says, um, Therefore, take heed to yourselves and to all the flock among you, which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers, to shepherd the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood. Many of us have heard this before. He's speaking to um, the elders there, telling them, hey, listen, take heed to yourselves before you take heed to the uh, saints in your assembly, right? And this is what he says in verse 29. He says, for I know this, that after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. Also, from among yourselves, men will rise up speaking perverse things to draw away the disciples after them, uh, after themselves. Therefore, watch and remember that for three years I did not cease to warn everyone night and day with tears. So now, brethren, I commend you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and give you an inheritance among all those who are sanctified. And then even in this epistle, right, we have uh, on a couple occasions already in chapter 1, verse 3, Paul says this, As I urged you when I went into Macedonia, remain in Ephesus that you may charge some that they teach no other doctrine. And then, of course, in chapter 4, verse 1, he says to Timothy, Now the Spirit expressly says, that in latter times some will depart from the faith, giving heed to deceiving spirits and doctrines of demons. The Lord will bless the reading of his word to us once again. Let's just open in a word of prayer. Our Father, um, over and over again, we didn't even read all of them, um, your word warns that there will be those who rise up amongst us who are not only false teachers, but are teaching false doctrines. We're living in a time where, you know, we know the world um, 
doesn't accept truth any longer. And we see this creeping into your church as well. So we pray, Lord, as we look at some of the marks of these things, some of these things to look out for, that you would give us wisdom and give us discernment because we want uh, to protect your assembly. As we've already learned, it's your assembly that is the pillar and ground of truth. We are responsible for displaying the truth. We are the ones who are uh, responsible for supporting and upholding the truth. And we know that the enemy would love nothing more than to tear that down, even within this place. And so for, again, we ask for your blessing this morning as we look into your word. In Jesus' name, amen. And so here, as we've already looked at, is you know Paul has warned Timothy, hey, listen, there is going to be those who rise up amongst you who are teaching things contrary to what I taught you, Timothy, okay? And then we also learn later on that there'll be those who actually are leaving the faith because they're hearing other doctrines and they're drawn away to those things. So here, when we get to this portion here in in, uh, 1 Timothy chapter 6, which is, uh, I think, important for us, is that Paul is actually going to tell Timothy, hey, listen, here's what to look for. Okay, and so our two points this morning are very simple. We're going to look at the marks of a false teacher, and we're going to look at the motives of a false teacher. Okay, those are the two things we're going to look at. The first thing here is in verse 3 of 1 Timothy chapter 6. And the first mark of a false teacher is their arrogance. Their arrogance. Look at this. He says, if anyone teaches otherwise and does not consent to wholesome words, even the words of our Lord Jesus Christ, and to the doctrine which accords with godliness. Okay? What Paul here is saying is they are refusing to consent to the words of the Lord Jesus Christ or to his doctrine. The word otherwise here in the Greek is, uh, just means another of a different kind. It actually frequently frequently refers to something diametrically opposed to what is right. These guys are teaching otherwise. But not only that, the word consent, consent means to come to, to draw near. It refers to the act of one who accepts another's offer. It actually means to give one's agreement to. And so here what Paul is telling Timothy is that there were some, there were those who were teaching things diametrically opposed to Paul's teaching. They do not agree or accept the teachings of Paul. It's arrogance. They refuse to agree or to accept the teachings of Paul. And he uses another word here in this verse. He says, they, you know, they do not consent or agree to the wholesome words. Wholesome is to be sound, right? To be well, to be healthy. When I did the overview of this book, right, we looked at this. It's where our word hygiene comes from, uh, comes from this Greek word. Godliness in this verse means piety towards God, reverence, respect, okay? It's referring to that teaching which concerns the proper attitude of the individual towards God. So this teaching that they refuse, this teaching that they don't agree with, right, 
is not only godly, but it actually promotes godliness. And they want nothing to do with it. Isaiah's first test of any teacher was this. To the law and to the testimony, he says, if they speak not according to his word, it is because there is no light in them. It's Isaiah chapter 8, verse 20. In 2 Timothy, when we get to there, chapter 1, it is important that the church, it says, hold fast the form of sound words, which is the same word here, or healthy words. Okay? We have to hold fast to it, brothers and sisters. Okay? We cannot forsake it. We cannot just decide, no, I'm not going to agree with this anymore. Okay? In fact, if you'll turn me just quickly to 2 Peter, keep your finger there in 1 Timothy. 2 Peter chapter 2. Second Peter chapter 2, beginning in verse 1, Peter says this, But there were also false prophets among the people, even as there will be false teachers among you who will secretly bring in destructive heresies, even denying the Lord who bought them, and bring on themselves swift destruction. Peter here is saying is that actually in the Old Testament, you'll read, that there were those who proclaimed to be prophets, but they were false prophets. What they were saying were not the things of God. They were saying false things. And you know what? Israel was supposed to do away with them. And you know what? They didn't have the will to do it. And guess what happened? All kinds of problems. Peter here is using this as an example. He's saying, hey, listen, there were old prophets back then that didn't get dealt with. Guess what? There's going to be false teachers today, and you better deal with it. In fact, it's interesting as we keep reading here, notice how similar these first few verses are to what we're going to be looking at in 1 Timothy. Paul and Peter's words are almost identical. In verse 2, Peter says, And many will follow their destructive ways, because of whom the way of truth will be blasphemed. By covetousness, which as you'll see is in our portion today, they will exploit you with deceptive words. For a long time their judgment has not been idle, and their destruction does not slumber. This is a big deal. Okay? It's all throughout the scriptures. Okay? Those who are false and present something that is not the words of God. Something that is contrary to that. And for whatever reason, the Bible says, is that's what people like to hear. Okay? They're leaving the faith because of these unwholesome words. Because of these teachings that do not agree with the teachings of Paul, which ultimately are the words of Christ. They don't agree. And so we see here that, that Paul is telling here Timothy, hey, listen, one of the first things you look for is that these false teachers that I want you to look out for, they do not, do not agree with my teachings, he says. And then certainly, right, what they're teaching was diametrically opposed to what Paul uh, was teaching or had taught. But not only do we see their arrogance, 
here, but, but also Paul says, hey, Timothy, notice their attitude, okay? Notice their attitude here. In verse 4, he says, he, speaking of the false teacher, he is proud, knowing nothing, but is obsessed with disputes and arguments over words from which come envy, strife, reviling, evil suspicions, useless wranglings of men of corrupt minds and destitute of the truth. Okay? Um, a second mark is a teacher's own attitude. The word proud here, okay? Th- these men are, are proud instead of being humble, right? A false teacher is proud, yet it's so interesting, right? Yeah, he has nothing to be proud about because it says right here that he does not know anything. How interesting is that? How ironic is that? That these teachers are proud, and yet they don't know anything. 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 7, we've already been through this, but I'll remind you, he, Paul describes them as this. He says, desiring to be teachers of the law, understanding neither what they say, nor the things which they affirm. They're saying things and agreeing with things that they know nothing about. That's these false teachers. It's amazing to me that that's what I see in here today. When I watch some of these people on TV or if I read about something over here, and it's funny listening to them talk about these things, and I'm like, they don't even know what they're talking about. And yet, they're so proud, so uh, confident in what they're saying. Ripping things out of context, saying things that are in the scripture that are not even in the scriptures. It's amazing to me. It, it's unfortunate, but there's been so many conversations I've had with some of my colleagues, some of my parents at school who are Catholic. And some of the things that they persist with me, I've just very nice said, hey, listen, show me where that is in the Bible. And it's sad to see when some of these, even one parent one time, she was so upset because she thought the Bible taught it. She even went to some person, she got him on the phone with me, some person that she felt was knowledgeable, and the person admitted to her on the phone, well, that's not technically in the Bible. And her face just dropped. But there are people who are telling them that it's true. But they don't even know what they're talking about. It is. It's tragic. Listen, brothers and sisters, a believer who understands the word will have a burning heart, not a big head. You remember when Jesus opened up the scriptures to those on the road to Emmaus? Right? What'd they say? Did not our hearts burn within us when he opened up the scriptures? That's what... As we study the Bible and as we understand God's word, that's what it should produce. It should never produce a big head. Never. Right? There's a story of two old women in Shanghai who were discussing the topic of pride and began to wonder if Hudson Taylor was ever tempted to be prideful. And for those who don't know, Hudson Taylor was a missionary in China. What he did for the Lord is, is you, um, it's amazing. It's amazing what he did for the Lord. Right? And so they were wondering if he was ever tempted to be prideful because of his many accomplishments. 
one of the women decided to ask his, his wife, uh, Maria. And uh, Maria promised the women that she would find out. And so when Mrs. Taylor asked her husband if he was ever tempted to be proud, he was surprised. He said, proud about what? He asked. About all the things you have done, his wife explained. Taylor responded, I never knew I'd done anything. That's what we want, right? Not like these false teachers who are proud about something that they don't even know anything about. In fact, this another word they used here, which is very interesting. Uh, it says here in the New King James that they are obsessed with disputes. Um, obsessed actually means filled with a morbid desire. It actually means to be sick. Okay? So metaphorically, it's used of an ailment of the mind. So it speaks of morbid fondness for something. The idea is a simple one of sickness as opposed to health. Right? And so again, it's interesting that Paul here is using this on purpose. He's using this word in contrast to wholesome. Remember, we talked about the wholesome words of Christ, which are healthy. We get that word hygiene from. These guys... It says here that they're obsessed, they're sick, is what he's saying. Okay? In fact, this conceited attitude right, causes the teacher to argue about minor matters concerning words. See that in verse 3. Instead of feeding on the wholesome words of Christ, right, you might say that they get sick about questions. You see, people love speculative questions. Right? Instead of being steady in their faith, they experience paralysis by analysis. They're always analyzing stuff, never making any um, progress spiritually. Instead of having a settled grounding of the truth and living it out. And the result of these perverse disputings, right, as it says here in this verse, is envy, quarreling, malicious talk, evil suspicions. In verse 5, that word useless wranglings actually means constant friction. Constant friction. So what is envy? I want what you have, and I will stop at nothing to get it. Further, I believe God is holding out on me. At its very root, it's grounded in unbelief. It's a lack of faith in God's providence and goodness. Envy is resenting God's goodness to others and ignoring God's goodness to me. That's what it is. Reviling literally means blasphemes. Here it means slander, uh, abusive language, strife. Strife here means dissensions, always looking for a theological or church fight, ready to fight at the drop of a hat and willing to drop that hat yourself. Evil suspicions, always looking to criticize, never giving the benefit of the doubt, questioning others' motives, something you could never know. You would, you would rather misrepresent others then take the time to find out the truth. 
In verse 5, it says that these are men of corrupt minds. It actually could be better understood as men corrupted in mind. Verse 5. 1 Timothy 6. You're welcome. Destitute of the truth. This word, that's an interesting phrase, destitute of the truth. It means to defraud, rob, despoil, or to allow oneself to be defrauded. And so the implication is that they once possessed the truth. And so a very common hearsay in the Christian world is this so-called prosperity gospel. The teaching that material affluence is a reward from God for faith and spirituality. Paul himself, arguably the greatest Christian of all, right, disproves any such teaching. Not only by such passages as this, but by his own life. Okay? Like the Lord Jesus himself, Paul finally died with almost no possessions at all. He had nothing. <laughs> his strong rebuke of this type of teaching says its promoters are men of corrupt minds and destitute of the truth. In fact, he says this there, at the end of verse 5, he says, don't have fellowship with them. Stay away from them. And so the tragedy of all this is that people are robbed of the truth while they think they're discovering the truth. That's the tragedy of it. They think that the weekly arguments in their meetings during which they exchange their ignorance are a means of growing in grace when the result is actually a loss of character, not an improvement. And so we have to be careful of this. Eh? We can be susceptible to these things too. And so we see here the marks of false teachers. Right? They're ones who uh, are teaching something other than what Paul was teaching, the words of Christ. They were those who were proud and but then we also see the motive for their teaching. Right? Um, these false teachers thought that godliness was a way to financial gain. They used their religious profession as a means to make money. What they did was not a true ministry. What they did was what we call a religious business. Don't see that today, do we? Paul was always careful not to use his calling and ministry as a means of making money. In fact, there was one time, right, where he refused support from the Corinthian church. Has anybody ever known a full-time worker who refused support? I've never met one. Paul refused it. The Corinthian church says, hey, listen, we want to support you, Paul. And he said, no. Right? Because he did not want anyone to accuse him of greed. Amazing. That's in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verses 15 to 19. In fact, in his letter to the Thessalonica church, he, Paul says this, he says, he never used his preaching as a cloak of covetousness. Or another way of reading that is a pretext for greed. In 1 Thessalonians 2, verse 5. 
And so what a tragedy it is today, right, to see religious frauds who prey upon gullible people, promising them help while taking away their money. It's horrible. It happens all the time. All the time. And so to warn Timothy and us, right, about the dangers of covetousness, right, Paul shares with us a few facts in these rest of these verses we have here. The first one is in verse 6. Wealth does not bring contentment. Wealth does not bring contentment. The word contentment means an inner sufficiency that keeps us at peace in spite of outward circumstances. And it's important for us to know what contentment is not. Okay? Contentment is not laziness. (laughs) It is not selfishness. It's not complacency. It's not Winnie the Pooh in the Hundred Acre Wood after polishing off a whole jar of honey, then plops himself down against a tree for a nice, sticky, satisfying nap. That's not contentment. Contentment is an attitude of the mind. Independent of the externals and dependent on God. Godliness with contentment is independent of one's bank book. Okay? Independent of one's possessions. It is recognizing the sufficiency of what we have. Philippians chapter 4, verse 11, Paul says, I have learned in whatever state I am to be content. No matter what it is. And Paul was in both. Paul knew what it was to have much, and Paul also knew what it was like to have nothing. And Paul learned this secret. You see, true contentment comes from willingness in the heart, not wealth in the hand. That's where contentment comes. Willingness in your heart. To to know that what God has for us is sufficient. A person who depends on material things for peace and assurance will never be satisfied. For material things have a way of losing their appeal, don't they? On Wednesday night in our smoker, we were just talking about how in Matthew 6, right? It says, do not store for yourselves treasures on earth. Why? Well, because rust, though rust and, and, and moth will destroy, and even a thief can come in and take it. Right? The treasures of this earth are fleeting. Right? They're temporary. But Jesus says in that same chapter, right? He says, but seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added unto you. You see, Jesus says that if you will put God's interests first in your life, he actually guarantees your future needs. Guarantees them. If you seek the, first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, then you will never lack any necessities of life. The Bible promises that. You won't ever lack the necessities of life. God will provide all those things for you, but he needs you to first put put him first. That's where true contentment lies, not in outward circumstances. It's interesting when we talk about this topic, right, that like most 
people who need help, whether it's uh, seeking a psychiatrist or um, people who are, are struggling with them, are people who have a lot of money, which is interesting to me. It's the people who have very little who seem very content. <laughs> and he actually talks about that a little bit too. There is some dangers, right, to having a lot. And so... Um, Wealth does not bring contentment. But also wealth, we've kind of already alluded to this a little bit, is wealth is not continuous. Right? Wealth is not lasting. Right? He says here, um, and I'll read verse 6 because you didn't read it. Now godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into this world, and it is certain we can carry nothing out. This is a fascinating verse for me. Um, I'll try to explain it as best I can. So the word and in some of your Bibles there is italicized, meaning that it's not in the original Greek text. The translators, right, they, they supply it in there in an attempt to connect these two statements, which they, they do sometimes, right? But the Greek word for, um, it, it's, I think it's hoti. I don't even know if I'm saying it right. That Greek word that they have in there is the connection. They didn't need to put in this word and, okay? So... Expositors, they offer the following when it comes to understanding how to read this verse, okay? You omit the and and the certain, okay? And you rend this Greek word, hoti, as because. And so the statement is actually read this way, which is very different than what we're reading here. We brought nothing into this world because we can carry nothing out. You think, wait a minute, what? Okay, yeah. I'll say it one more time. We brought nothing into this world because we can carry nothing out. Job chapter 1, verse 21, Job says this. He says, naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked shall I return there. In fact, there's several verses that are similar to this one uh, that you can read as well. You see, when someone's spirit leaves his body at death, what can they take with it? Nothing. I've never seen, a, you know, a soul with a backpack on or, you know, some spirit with a trailer hitch. Or I've never seen that, right? When someone's spirit leaves their body at death, it can take nothing with it. Because, and this is why it's because, when that person came into the world at birth, he didn't have anything with them. That's what, that's what Paul's saying here. Hey, listen, you cannot take anything with you because you didn't bring anything when you came. The because works there. And so it's fascinating to me and to think of it that way is that, you know, so many people, right, they hold so tightly to the things of this world. I love my dad, you know, he used to always say, and he still says it, John, hold loosely to those things which are not eternal. Hold loosely. <laughs> you can't bring it with you. Right? And the reason is because when you were born, you didn't have anything with you. Why do you think you can bring something with you when you came with nothing? And so our, in verse 8 here, another uh, thought that Paul has here is that our basic needs are easily met. Right? He says here, and, have food, and having food and clothing, which with these we shall be content. The word translated clothing there really means covering. So they translated clothing, but you can actually use it as shelter too, right? Is when I teach my kids um, about survival at school, you know, we read a story, 
one of the things we always have is, what, what do you need to survive if you were alone in the wilderness for so many days, right? And they come right off the bat. You need food, water, and shelter. That's what you need. Okay? Those are the, the basic necessities, right? And so the contentment that we're talking about is this consciousness that having food and clothing or covering provided by God, we are fortified against outward circumstances. In other words, remember, you have what you need. Don't worry about what's happening. Hey, when things come into your life that, that you weren't prepared for, right? Paul's saying, hey, listen, you, got, you ate food today? You, you got clothes on your back? You're all set. Hey, you got a shelter? You're good. Hey, and that's what he's saying, right? These, right, protect the body, right? Nothing outwardly can injure the inner life. That's what he's saying. That's the contentment where it lies. Okay? There's nothing out here that can injure what you have in here. No matter how devastating it is, we can have contentment because of just our basic needs. Right? But here's the other thing, too. Is, um, David Thoreau, he says this. He says that a man is wealthy in proportion to the number of things he can afford to do without. I think that's an interesting statement, right? You see, because I think we've become so inundated, right, with luxuries that we have forgotten how to enjoy our necessities. We have, right? If nothing else this morning, maybe just a, a challenge and encourage for all of us is, just to, again, thank God and enjoy the basic necessities that he's given us. You know? What's your name? Erica. Erica. You read my notes, Erica? Read my notes. Yeah, that's a beautiful, beautiful segue into this next portion. You're right. Is that not only, right, do we forget to enjoy these necessities, but Paul even says here is that this idea is actually destructive. Um, it leads us down this hole where, where God never intended us to be. In fact, if you look at these last two verses here, it says, but those who desire to be rich fall into temptation and a snare and into many foolish and harmful lusts which drown men in destruction and perdition. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil for which some have strayed from the faith in their greediness and pierced themselves through with many sorrows. Now, it's important to understand here is that when it says that in verse 9, those who desire to be rich, okay? This desire is not a desire which comes about from emotions. This, the word here means it's a desire that comes from reasoning over time, okay? This desire to be wealthy 
again, is not a passing emotional thing, but it's the result of a process of thinking. Serious consideration has been given to the matter of accumulating wealth. That's what Paul's talking about here. Someone who is saying, okay, how do I get rich? Okay? With the result that this desire has become a settled and planned procedure. It describes a person who has to have more and more material things in order to be happy or in order to feel successful. Or we can go right back to this word again, in order to be content. They've got to have more, more and more and more, okay, in order for them to feel content. But Paul here says this, riches, right, are a trap. They're a trap. They lead to bondage, not freedom, okay? Instead of giving satisfaction, is what this person is thinking it's going to give them, right? Riches create additional lusts. So just when you think, okay, if I get enough money, I'll satisfy whatever this is that I have right here. And then when you get that money, you're like, man, I've got a whole bunch of other now desires. These lusts that they uh, refer to in this verse. And now these lusts, these desires, now they need to be satisfied. In Ecclesiastes chapter 5, verses 10 through 12, it says this, He who loves silver will never be satisfied with silver nor he who loves abundance. They'll never be satisfied with increase. This also is vanity. When goods increase, they increase who eat them. So what profit have the owners except to see them with their eyes? This is great. The sleep of a laboring man is sweet, whether he eats little or much, but the abundance of the rich will not permit him to sleep. Amazing, right? Uh, whatever it is that this person is trying to attain, it will never give him the satisfaction that he thinks he's going to get. Never. In fact, he'll lose sleep. Instead of providing help and health, an excess of material things actually hurts and wounds. The result Paul describes very vividly He's talking about these harmful desires to be rich, right? He says they drown men in ruin and perdition or destruction and perdition. And so the picture here that Paul has given is someone who's drowning. I don't know if anybody's ever almost drowned before. Anybody? Have you almost drowned before? Listen, it's horrifying, isn't it? I almost drowned once. Yeah. At Camp Maria, they had this thing called the fun float. And uh, it was this big, huge, inflatable thing, huge. And uh, every day at free time, we would go out, we'd swim out to the fun float. And uh, I was a camper at the time, 12, 14 years old. But the big thing was we always do is counselors would be out there and campers would be out there and it would just be all out brawl trying to throw each other off the fun float. So this one particular day, I got thrown off the fun float, which had happened millions of times. And so I went under and when I came up, I came up under the float. So, you know, you come up, bloop, you know, I hit the float, and I'm like, oh. So I go down, and I try to come up again, hit the float again. Still, I'm okay. I'm all right. I'm like, yeah, that's weird. Go down, because you're kind of disoriented. Come up, hit the float again. 
Well, now what do you think your body does? Panic. Panic, where you just, you're screaming underwater and this and that. And all I remember is when I thought, just about when I thought I was going to die, I found the surface of the water, just like you see in the movies. But man, it's a horrifying thing to almost drown, right? He's saying that's what it's like for these people who have a desire, right, to be rich. He says that it's a picture of a man drowning, right? He trusted his wealth. He sailed along. The storm came, and he sank. He sank. You see, it's a dangerous thing to use religion as a cover-up for acquiring wealth. God's servant, as James spoke on, is certainly worthy of his labor, but his motive for laboring should never be money. Never. That would make him a hireling, not a shepherd, John tells us in chapter 10. Brothers and sisters, it's not what we have, it's what has us. It's not what we have, it's what has us. Or I could even say who has us, right? It seems so natural and sensible to grasp rather than to give. Let's not be those who our natural tendency is to grasp. Let's be those who give. And then lastly, they should not ask, how much will I get? But rather, how much can I give? Let's pray. Father, we thank you again uh, for these instructions that Paul gave Timothy so long ago. We're thankful for how applicable they are to us today. Um, We certainly would pray for your protection uh, here at Brantford Bible Chapel that... uh, Your word tells us that there are those even amongst us that can come in and and give these doctrines of demons, as as Paul describes them as, uh, teachings that um, are diametrically opposed to um, the teachings of Paul, to the words of Christ. And so pray, Lord, that as we look at some of these marks um, of these false teachers and and we look at some of their motives here, that that would help us identify these things. And that also might help us each and of our own lives too, to protect ourselves, uh, Lord, from teaching something, any, anything that's opposed to um, the words of Christ. And that, uh, again, you would help us, help us here to be able to um, uphold and, and to guard and to uh, present the truth of the Lord Jesus Christ here in this place in a time where, uh, again, uh, truth is not something that is uh, upheld anymore. It's not something that's celebrated. Um, And so, uh, Lord God, we, again, we need your help for this. And we pray these things, uh, giving you thanks in Jesus' name. Amen.